was hoping for a drum roll now. <laughs> Scripture deserves a drum roll. This is the story Luke records following the death and burial of Jesus. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. Jesus asked, well, what are you talking about as you walk along? They stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cephas replied, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have taken place here the last few days? Jesus said, what things? Do you think he smiled? What things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All of these things happened three days ago. But there's more. Some women from our group left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find the body. They came to us saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who told them that he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had said. They didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then Jesus interpreted for them the things that were written about himself in the scriptures, starting with Moses and then going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going to go on ahead. But the disciples urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. After Jesus took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and we'd explain the scriptures to us? They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying to each other, The Lord has really risen. He has appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. always love um, on Easter watching children do their Easter egg scavenger hunt or just the, the search for eggs. And I saw a cartoon where 
two children are standing before their mom with their baskets, eager to, to get underway, and the mom has a list, and she says, instead of looking for eggs this year, you're going to be looking for mommy's sunglasses, the bracelet <laughs> grandma gave her, and the checkbook. So if you need, we've got a few kids here in this service and a lot more in the next. So if you need anybody, you could maybe take them home. <laughs> With mobile phones, internet capability, and 24-hour news links, we practically have, we are in the know on, a, on almost in practically real time. And yet... We still experience extended times of being out of the loop of communication. Times of sleep or of travel or times of being where there's no Wi-Fi connectivity. Or suppose you're at a major sporting event and you happen to get up to visit the restroom and suddenly while you're in there you hear the roar of the crowd and you come back to your seat and you ask, what did I miss? And the person goes, dude, only the best, best play of the game. I think this is the kind of interaction Jesus is having with these two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other not named. It could be his wife or it could be a traveling companion. They appear to be coming home to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And Jesus joins them and asks what they're talking about. Startled that he came from the direction of Jerusalem, they said, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem to not know what has happened these past three days. And of course, the text tells us he says what things, but I like to think Jesus said, what did I miss? What makes this story so intriguing is that it combines humor irony, and a profound twist. It also happens to be the most beautiful poetic structure. If you examine it, there are parallel lines that are going like this and they converge on a central exclamation point in the heart of the story. The other fascinating thing about this story is it parallels the story of Mary and Joseph leaving Jerusalem thinking Jesus is in their company but having to go back three days later to Jerusalem. To find him. That's in Luke 2. And here it is at the end of Luke's gospel. Again, a parallel. Luke has this exquisite way of proclaiming what the message of this gospel is all about. And hopefully in this sermon you'll get it. I had one person come out of the early service saying, I didn't get it. <laughs> I said, come back for the 9 o'clock after you've had some coffee. Let's start with the humor. Here are these two followers of Jesus telling this man they didn't recognize as Jesus all the things that happened to Jesus the past few days. As if he didn't know. It's just like someone saying to you, oh, I just read the most fascinating thing. And you are the one who wrote it. You want to go, yeah, I know. Or the time... I told my wife and a friend of hers um, a lengthy explanation of something, and they looked at each other 
with that knowing look and said, mansplaining. <laughs> and I said, what? Okay, you're supposed to, man, you guys don't get mansplaining, huh? <laughs> wow. By the third service, I hope it, it works. <laughs> the disciples tell this stranger how Jesus was regarded as a prophet, a spokesperson for God. But even more, he was someone through whom God's power was made evident in his, in his deeds and in his teaching. So much so, we believe that this was the one God had chosen to redeem Israel. And by that, they meant they expected that Jesus would bring about the redemption of Israel by rescuing them from their enemy, Rome. The occupation of Rome and the control of the religious authorities of that day and set them free to serve God the way they wanted to. Yet to their dismay and disorientation, they report that instead of Jesus defeating their enemy, he ended up dying by the enemy's hands. His crucifixion crushed all of their hope. They continued, what's more, some women in our group had gone to the tomb and found it empty. And they came back and startled us with the news that they had, they had seen an angel who told them he's alive! Exclamation point. And what you might expect, then some men go to the tomb to check it out to see if it's true. And they get there and found it to be empty. But then Luke adds, but they didn't see him. And now here's the irony. The disciples are telling Jesus that he is alive. But they themselves, like those who go to visit the tomb, do not see him. And now Jesus speaks, and here comes the twist. They've been telling Jesus what they think he missed by the events of the past three days, and now he's going to tell them what they've missed regarding the meaning and significance of those events. Just as they do not recognize Jesus as present with them, they failed to recognize the scriptures that pointed to the fact that God's Messiah would suffer and die in order to bring about Israel's redemption. It was not that God would redeem Israel from suffering, but rather that God would redeem Israel through suffering. Instead of them seeing the cross as the defeat of Jesus, he tells them that it's the very thing that defeats sin and death, the greatest enemy of us all. It was as if they were looking through the wrong end of a telescope what should have been magnified for them became narrow and small. Instead of Jesus, the disciples should have been the ones asking, what did we miss? What they could not see before, though, now comes into focus as a result of Jesus' resurrection and everything they did not understand suddenly came, suddenly made sense. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
Soon it's that time of the year that various commencement speakers will give graduates advice as to how to enter this world and how to live in it. And common to such speeches are messages along these lines. Do what you love. Pursue what makes you happy. Be the person you aspire to become. In New York, the New York Times columnist and PBS commentator David Brooks has a new book out called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. And he would suggest an entirely different message. Brooks says messages about how to gain success based on one's achievements describes one's pursuit of the first mountain. But if you build your life around what makes you happy, you'll end up submerging the core parts of yourself and lose contact with them. That is your heart and your soul. The two parts of our consciousness that are about attachment, the heart being attached to another person, the soul being attached to what is good. With sincerity and vulnerability, Brooks then relates a period of personal grief and suffering, what he calls the valley of life, when, when life can knock you sideways or the bottom falls out of your life circumstance and, or you just reach the summit of that first mountain and find it unfulfilling, not enough. Brooks tells of his own situation where his kids were grown, his, his marriage had ended in divorce, and his work life left him feeling lonely and isolated. At such times, Brooks says, you can either, those times will either break you or they will break you open. And if they break you open, you have an opportunity to attempt the second mountain. By asking the question from the first mountain, what did I miss? We begin to learn to pay attention to that inner reality. We learn the value of living not for ourselves, but learning what it means to give our lives away for the sake of others. Brooks calls it a mental shelf shift from selfism to relationshipism. Relationalism. <laughs> There's no ship in it. It's just relationalism. His book offers then practical direction for how to make the four biggest commitment of our lives. A commitment to vocation, a commitment to a spouse or a loved one and family, a commitment to faith or philosophy, and finally a commitment to community. And Brooks says what characterizes people who choose the pursuit of that mountain is joy. The result of engaging in such commitments is joy. A far more enduring and substantive experience than happiness ever could be. I like how Lewis says it, that joy isn't something we can attain. It's given to us as a gift. It comes to us from beyond ourselves. I'm always amazed to hear people take for the observance of Easter as some seasonal inspiration of life, like nature, 
we can be renewed and start over as if the resurrection story is nothing more than a metaphor, just some prompt to help us feel better about life. But what makes the celebration of Easter and resurrection so powerful and so profound is the one who suffered and sacrificed his life for us. That becomes the means and motivation and empowerment to do the same for others. God's love demonstrated in a life-giving act of rescue and rebirth. So I challenge us this Easter to do some serious soul-searching and ask, what am I missing? What am I missing? What do I not see that is essential to my understanding of a meaningful relationship with God and with others? Perhaps then we'll join Luke's exclamation with joy-filled praise and say, Jesus is alive, and so am I.